From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Apollo 11 rocket NASA launched into space 50 years ago this week was also the blast-off point for things now commonly used on Earth. Cordless drills, memory foam, non-flammable polymer fibers, and this staple of late-night TV infomercials. The number one reason people don't work out is time. They just don't have enough. So we've developed a way to burn more calories with a full body workout that gets results. In addition to the Bowflex, the first moonwalk created the foundations for technology that moves people and products around every single day. The Lunar Laser Retro Reflector used by astronaut Buzz Aldrin was critical to developing global positioning systems or GPS. Well, Dr. Todd Yeager is much more equipped to talk about this than I. He's global director of the commercial of commercial optics for Horaeus, which helped produce the reflector, and he made the trip in from Horaeus's quartz glass facility in Buford, Georgia. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So astronaut Buzz Aldrin carried the lunar laser retroreflector onto the surface of the moon. What picture of what it looked like? So it's uh, about a foot by two foot in diameter, a few inches thick, and it has a 10 by 10 array, so 100 of these fused silica corner cube retro reflectors. What do they do? So they're basically a fancy mirror that doesn't require as high precision alignment as your standard mirror. If you think about getting ready in the morning and you're looking in the, the mirror, if you're standing right in front of it, you can see yourself. But if you move off to either side, you're seeing a reflection that's at a 90 degree angle off of that. Whereas this corner cube retro reflector, the way it works is if you took a, a cube and truncated off the corner, you have three perpendicular surfaces. So when light enters the front, it bounces off all three of these surfaces and then turns 180 degrees and comes right out the way it came. So this helped in making the alignment much easier for the entire experiment. So what was the experiment? What was it doing? Well, really, it's similar to sonar, where you would send out a signal that bounces off of something, and based on the round-trip time, you can determine the distance away. In this way, though, instead of sound, we used light. So a high-power ruby laser was the original light source, fired from the Earth, travels to the moon, hits the retroreflector, comes back. Round-trip time's about two and a half seconds. If we take that round-trip time, divide by two, multiply by the speed of light, we have the distance. So that's what it was doing, measuring distance. Absolutely, and, and to a very high precision. We actually can measure the distance from the Earth to the Moon down to about a millimeter. Wow, that, even at that time, that technology. Well, it's gotten a little bit better in the precision over the years with the growth of uh, stronger laser sources, shorter pulses, etc. So even to this day, they're still using that same retroreflector for the experiments. It's the only remaining piece of equipment from the Apollo missions that's still functioning after 50 years. That is just astounding. It was also used on Apollo 14, 15, 11, and 50 years later, still delivering data from the surface of the moon? Absolutely. So our company, Horaeus, was tasked with providing a glass that would last for 10 years. So managing a global sales team, I'm always happy when we can under-promise and over-deliver. <laughs> so having it still functioning after 50 years is a great achievement. But if, if it needed to be replaced, I mean, they're not are there manned missions to the moon in the works? There's a lot of talk of manned missions. Uh, certainly there are some uh, probe missions that are scheduled for different countries to do this. Uh, but it is pretty difficult to send someone up there, dust off the moon dust, or replace an optic whenever something goes wrong. So it is really a testament to the strength of the material and also to the design of the experiment. 
Wow, it's really something. All right, so how is this all connected to GPS and the development of GPS? Right, so you may have heard of a, a gentleman by the name of Albert Einstein that was pretty popular. Yes. Yeah. So he had these uh, two theories of, of relativity, general and uh, special relativity. They describe how clocks tick and how the, the time actually would change, either based on the speed something's traveling or how gravity affects the perception of, of time. When we use this experiment, we're able to accurately plot the orbit of the moon down to this precision. We can check whether Einstein's theory of relativity actually holds water, a and it does. Um, so how does this relate to GPS? If you think about these GPS satellites that are zipping around the planet, they're traveling faster than you would be just sitting here on mm -hmm. Earth. Their clocks actually will tick slightly slower than a clock here on Earth. Likewise, you have this distortion of the space-time fabric by a huge massive object, in this case the Earth, and also the distortion from the Moon. This causes another time dilation. In this case, the clock on Earth would actually tick slightly slower, if I got that right, uh, versus the clock that would be put um, on this, uh, on this, sorry, it's a clicking, it would be ticking faster on the satellite. I have to correct myself. Mm -hmm. You get a so time slower dilation. on the Earth, faster on the satellite. Right, and, and you actually get a difference of about 38 microseconds, so 38 millionths of a second. Doesn't sound like much. But in order for GPS to work, these atomic clocks have to have a precision in the nanosecond or billionths of a second range. So just that time dilation of 38 microseconds would cause your GPS that might be accurate to a foot or less in the morning to being off by five miles by the end of the day. Wow. Okay. I didn't even know those two were related. Right. So they, they work this algorithm into the processors that are on the satellites and then also into that little receiver that you have. Because GPS is just clocks talking to each other and, and measuring what the delay from one time source to another would be. My guest is Dr. Todd Yeager. He's Global Director of Commercial Optics for Horaeus, which helped develop something called the Lunar Laser Retro Reflector placed on the moon 50 years ago. Tomorrow, I guess, right? The technology is critical. To, was critical and continues to be to developing GPS. It is the only tool from that mission still actively sending data back to Earth. And Dr. Yeager, by the way, also worked at NASA's Laser Risk Reduction Program. Okay, so all of this was conceived by Dr. James Fowler when he was a graduate student in physics at Princeton. This was in the late 1950s. What was he studying specifically? So his proposal was really, hey, this has got to be a very simple idea when we think about laser physics, et cetera. And as a grad student, he wrote up this nice little proposal, made a note to his professor that said, hey, does this make any sense or, or will this work? Uh, I'm not sure if his professor had said initially no, and that's usually the response we get from our advisors is no, it's not going to work. Uh, but in fact, the simplicity of the experiment is one of the reasons that it, it still works today. That is really something. And, you know, it made me think about not only was the space race going on on this big level, but all of these scientists were in their own little space race. They were in competition to propose things to bring to the moon or, or experiments to do on the moon. Yeah, and I'd like to think that that competition was a little bit friendlier than the one in the Cold War. <laughs> but uh, coming from the academic world, I can tell you sometimes those competitions get a bit heated, especially when it comes to getting government funding. So. Well, how
how how did how does one turn a theoretical idea like this into something that astronauts could transport on Apollo 11? Well, so obviously there were some prototypes and test runs that would have occurred on Earth before then. Um, you don't uh, want to send something into space that you haven't tested mm -hmm. in, in one way or another. Um, really having lasers just being invented uh, just a few years before was the key. And the laser itself was really a solution looking for a problem for a long time. Now you can't do anything without a laser. Uh, so people were looking at these really interesting new physics experiments and saying, okay, I've got this great light source that can do all these great things. Who cares and why does it matter? And so this was an outcome of that taking this solution, trying to find problems that we could apply it to. If this had not happened, I mean, it's so difficult to imagine life today without GPS technology. So much is guided by it. Could it have been done as effectively without the reflector being situated on the moon? It's, it's always hard to say, uh, you know, what could have been, would have been, should have been, etc. Certainly, I don't believe that it would have moved as quickly as it did without this, this key crucial experiment. Um, it is a testament, though, to funding that goes into research to say, when you say, okay, we're giving you this money, we're doing the research, what's my return on investment? What's the product going to be? It's so difficult to say. This is a perfect example of why we need to continue funding programs because we never know what that outcome is going to be and how that's going to affect our life 25, 50, 100 years down the road. I'm wondering also how the signals or laser signals are sent to the moon to be received by this reflector. Are they all over the world? Because, of course, the moon turns mm -hmm. and it's not facing the Earth. Right. Uh, so this was actually a, a key part of the experiment. There had been some physicists before that had done some laser ranging by firing a laser at the moon and then seeing the reflection back. The problem was that you were always hitting off of a mountain or a valley, a boulder, a crater rim, etc. And so the distance varied greatly just because of the surface of the moon. So this gave a, a flat, fixed surface that's there constantly. There's a couple other retroreflectors that have been placed there in different spots around the, the moon, which helps to have a few targets to pick from mm -hmm. and also to verify the measurements that you have. Uh, it is... Although simple in design, a very, very complex experiment, though. Uh, the lasers are very bright. You're firing a quadrillion photons at the moon, which is a one with 17 zeros after it. Uh, it gets up to the moon. It starts out about a centimeter. By the time it hits the moon, you're a couple kilometers wide, and you're hitting a target that's a square foot or two square feet. That then reflects whatever it has hit back to the Earth, now your spot's maybe six kilometers wide, and your detectors may be a square centimeter, maybe a little bit bigger. So out of that quadrillion photons that you send out, you detect one. <laughs> it's like uh, going to a beach that's 1,000 kilometers long and, let's say, 30 feet deep and 300 kilometers in the other direction, and someone telling you exactly which grain of sand <laughs> they expect you to find. So really the, the needle in the proverbial haystack. So You know, I didn't ask you, how did Horaeus get connected with this? So Horaeus was well-known within research communities, of course, for high-purity materials in general. Uh, the Horaeus family actually started uh, in pharmaceuticals 350 years ago, believe it or not, and really the company is based around precious metals and their use. So where does Fusilica come into this? Well, in order to melt platinum for the original reactions that were needed to make these pharmaceuticals, they needed something that could withstand the high temperatures to melt platinum. And it ended up that natural quartz rock 
was what worked. Fast forward decades later, and um, they were starting to use this quartz in scientific experiments, needed a higher purity than what you got from a natural rock, and so fusilica was developed. So instead of normal glass melting where you've got sand and a few other things, you heat it up and it becomes a liquid, fusilica is actually made by a chemical reaction where you burn a silicon-containing compound in a hydrogen and oxygen flame and you deposit SiO2, so pure silica. It's actually one of the purest materials ever synthesized by man. Um, it probably helps out a lot that you had a lot of uh, German scientists that were working at NASA at the time that a German company's material was also selected. Uh, but it was a testament to the high purity of the fusilica that Horaeus was known for. Well, I want to thank you so much for telling us about this. Do you look up at the moon when you're looking at your GPS and think, oh... You're helping me out here. Well, I, I try to keep my eyes on the road for the most part. <laughs> of course you do. No <laughs> but, distracted driving here in Georgia. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, but no, I, I, I'm still one of those that gazes at the moon all the time wondering, you know, what what is it like up there? Mm. And I do have a sense of pride that the company that, that I represent uh, was able to produce something that has lasted so long. And, of course, we use that uh, as best as we can as salespeople because it's a great lifetime test. All right, Dr. Todd Yeager, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. He is Global Director of Commercial Optics for Horaeus Facility in Buford, which helped develop something called the Lunar Laser Retro Reflector, placed on the moon 50 years ago, tomorrow, and still being used. Critical developing to developing GPS. Well, we've got more Mooney stuff coming up for you, but right after this, we've got some unsung voices from the Moon Mission. Later in the show, Atlanta artist and author Matthew Terrell follows the tradition of the Southern Community Cookbook. The recipes are real, contributors, even the place, all fake. It's a most charming hoax. We are leaving you with Elton John's Rocket Man as we take a little break. Stay with us. In fact, it's cold as hell. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Cast your mind back to 1949, when British astronomer Fred Hoyle first used the term Big Bang Theory on a BBC radio program. Well, here in the U.S., Americans were hitting their stride on a massive bang of their own. The National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, was laying the groundwork for what would become NASA a decade later and send a manned rocket to the moon 10 years after that. Before that successful mission, Vicki Graves and her husband Barry started working for NACA. Women became integral to the agency during World War II when a number of male employees left to fight overseas. Many of those women stayed. Before electronic computers, all mathematical equations and computations were done by hand by people known as human computers, calculating trajectories for NACA. That's where Vicki Graves comes in. I worked there for two years. I had a job classification called computer, which was the same classification that the women had in the book Hidden Figures. We had a, a freedom machine uh, because there were no computers at that time. It was about this wide and uh, very, very heavy and had many rows of numbers across. And we would put in the data and pull a crank at the other side because it wasn't automated, it wasn't electronic, it was purely mechanical. But there were tricks we could use to, say, take a square root or something beyond normal arithmetic. It was 
you know, we could multiply and divide, not just add and subtract. And then there were these various other trick, trick ways that we would, would do things beyond that. At the time, NACA was responsible for supervising and developing studies on aviation, supersonic flight, and missile technology. Their main product was technical reports, which were shared with the, all of the aircraft companies, and they were really a support and research mechanism for the aircraft industry. Vicki left NACA two years after giving birth to her first child. Her husband, Barry, stayed on for the next 25 years, during and after it became NASA. Meanwhile, Vicki went on to participate in protests to support what became the Equal Rights Amendment. We are people who are fighting for our very economic survival. Congress agreed to vote. It passed with flying colors in both houses. President Nixon endorsed it. The ERA was sent to the 50 states for approval. 38 were needed to make it law. When the deadline came in 1979, 35 states had ratified the ERA, three states short. Vicki also joined her daughter as she enrolled at the College of William and Mary in 1968. She received her bachelor's degree in management with an emphasis on accounting. Today, she resides in Atlanta, where she continues to share her memories of NACA, which became the organization that first sent astronauts to the moon in 1969 and more on later missions. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Our thanks to Broadcast Solutions for recording that conversation with Vicki Graves. This week, GPB is chasing the moon to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. You can learn more about those stories on our website, gpb.org forward slash moon. You can also join the conversation on social media by using the hashtag GPB to the moon. This is David Bowie there with Space Oddity. We also heard from Patti Smith Group's Distant Fingers and Space is the Place from Sun Ra. All week we've been hearing about people from Georgia like Vicki, whose unsung contributions to the Apollo 11 mission 50 years ago made it happen. Well, Ed Dwight was very much in the public eye. The Kennedy administration was bent on winning the space race and integrating the South. Kennedy chose Dwight, a handsome, charismatic, skilled Air Force officer, to be the first African-American astronaut. Photos of Dwight blanketed black newspapers of the time. Negro astronaut aims for the moon, read the New York Times headline. He had all the right stuff, but ultimately was not chosen. Dwight is now 85, an engineer, entrepreneur, and a sculptor with a powerful story to tell. He's going to share it tomorrow at the Fernbank Science Center in Atlanta, but happy to speak with him first. Welcome, Ed Dwight. Thank you very much. I appreciate all those words there. Goodness. Well, you've done so much. You enlisted in the Air Force in 1953, an aggressive fighter pilot, an Air Force officer chosen from this list of Negro pilots, quote unquote, sent to the White House. And the president chose you. So there you are out, you know, doing press tours, speaking in front of groups all over the world, making highlights during the civil rights movement. What did it feel like to be held up as this sign of hope or progress to the black community? I went to white schools all the way through. 
I didn't have any idea uh, about this black struggle. I mean, you know, I went into that. I was living in a bubble. I joined the Air Force, and everywhere I went, I was the only black officer or the black pilot there. I was r- r- rather ill-prepared for it because I'm, you know, kind of a little short, quiet guy that worked very hard. And uh, that was my uh, that was my mo. You know, if you want something done, give it to Dwight. You know, hmm. what I mean, that that's where I was all the way through the, the military. It was always I was always solving problems. And so they had to deal with the package they got. Well, okay, so I have to stop you for a minute, because you write in your memoir, Soaring on the Mm -hmm. Wings of a Dream, about the personality of fighter pilots, you know, that they're superhuman Mm -hmm. confidence, uh, type A personalities, independent, aggressive, daring, risk-oriented. And you add, usually arrogant... People, I will say that for the the purposes. So, So you must have had that. No, I did not. And that's what the issue was. I wasn't any of that. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, and so, therefore, I'm sitting there noticing. I'm not a dumb guy, and I'm sitting there noticing just what was happening to me. So my challenge was, uh, you know, can I grow into this ar- arrogant guy that swaggers and does all that stuff? But, you know, short guys don't swagger. Uh, <laughs> you know, tall guys swagger, you know. And, and so... I have never seen a short guy that walks slow and swagger. They always walk a little faster, and they talk a little faster, because there's a lot of things that they have to in in, in their brains have to make up for. Well, there you are know, a lot and, of other exceptions there for you. I mean, because of the political mm-hmm. power at the time, many space program mm-hmm. facilities were mm-hmm. located in the South, Texas, Florida, right. Mississippi, Alabama. I've right. read accounts of other African Americans working inside of these. They were integrated workplaces, but everything was different outside of the gates. So, right. you know, how were you treated inside of the training program by your peers? And, and how was that different in public? The word was out before I ever got down there because if see the president just overrode everybody's either judgment or advice or counsel and even Congress was upset about the, the idea of integrating were, these it, facilities because there were thousands of people working there. You know the problem is, is you know it's one thing to be a worker bee and it's another thing to be a star. Mm-hmm. And so there were there were black people working in and around and stuff like that, but. They didn't uh, expect to exceed the stardom. That's why this whole hidden figures thing was hidden. Well, uh, so that wasn't the only place that you trained. You did a lot of training in aerospace research pilot school. This Mm -hmm. was at Edwards Air Force Base in California, headed by Chuck Yeager. Uh Was it different there? They were given instructions before I got there uh, to, to, to set the stage for you. I got there a few days later than some of the other people. A lot of the kids went down, the young guys went down there early so they could get acclimated. Well, I didn't do that. I didn't know about be, being acclimated. I had never been in research and development. Research and development is, is totally different. Uh, so they, they called all the people together, even the students, which would be my fellow students, and instructed them not to associate with me, not to talk to me, not to drink with me, don't invite me to any of their parties. I would go crazy psychologically, and I'd be gone in six months. Mm. Yeah, and and, and I should add for the audiences, this is not just your recollection. There was a White House report, an investigation after mm-hmm. that uh that that said that Jaeger right. specifically right. pulled all the instructors into a room and ordered them not to speak with you but it, it didn't bother me uh, you know i was it there didn't to, uh, no the whole issue is my reason for being there and that that has to do with my personality uh, I, I was given a task by by the president of the united states 
and I went about completing their tasks. And when the obstacles were set up, I just walked around them or over them and kept going. What were, so, what were your interactions with Jaeger like, though? I mean, this man who instructed everybody not to socialize with you. He would call me into his room uh, in his office, and he would ask me to quit. He said, you know, you're inadequate. Uh, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, and, and, and every now and then he'd pull out a list that he kept in his chest pocket, and he had written down all these names on it. And uh, and he would unfold that thing, and he said, there's 150 white boys that are more qualified than you to be here, so why don't you give up your slot and give it to one of these white guys? And he threatened that uh, they are going to send me up in space and leave me up there. Oh my uh, it was just a whole range of things. His justification for telling me that Kennedy wanted to kill me was that, see, Kennedy had already done what he needed to do, appoint me. That's all that politically needed to happen if i didn't make it that's too bad uh, but he would have satisfied the black community by just appointing me so therefore i was uh uh no longer of use to kennedy so he was going to kill me well after president kennedy was assassinated in 1963 his successor president lyndon johnson chose mm-hmm. another african-american pilot as mm-hmm. his candidate to become the first mm-hmm. black astronaut did you just say, forget it, I'm I'm out? How did that change your experience? What they did is, it says, Captain Dwight, you are going into space, period. Don't worry about it. You are going into space, but you've got to help us, okay? Now, here's what the president wants. He wants to select his own uh, a black astronaut. That's his. But we want you to help find him. And they help us. We want to know everything that happened to you from the time you got that letter inviting you to do this, uh, everything, all the setbacks, all the racial slights and the name calling. And we want it written down on a piece of paper so the president, when he finds his own guy, he'll make sure that he's, he's got that ground covered. Huh. And that was the deal. And so what we want you to do, you need to stand down for three years. At the end of that three years, we'll get our guy up, and then we'll integrate you back into You're going into space. There's absolutely no, pro, uh, no question about that. But you've got to work with us to do this. And they, and they asked me if I had one of these globes that spin around. I said, no. He said, well, you go find one of those globes that spin around, close your eyes, and put your finger, and whatever your finger lands, that's where we're going to send you. <laughs> and, and you will get a check every month, no problem. Stop making speeches. And that's the deal. Did, and that's the deal I got. Did you do it? Where'd you land with your finger on the globe? No, I, I didn't I didn't do that. I thought that was kind of a preposterous notion, but they were complaining about my speech making. I was not a militant guy, but I was getting on the edge of of, of getting a little militant in my speeches because I was really in demand. And, and people were still writing articles about all this stuff. I was on the Huntley Brinkley every day for one week. Uh, uh, because Ebony Magazine published uh, articles saying that I accused President Johnson of being a racist, and that that was a catalyst for my them bringing me to Washington, and obviously uh, publicly denied it, of course. So at the end of the day, I, I chose a base that didn't have a newspaper, Holloman Air Base in, the, in New Mexico, top secret base there, so I wouldn't be bothered by the press, and and my kids are being harassed at school. All kind of things were going on. Uh, so I went to Holloman Air Force Base out, out in the desert and, and just had a good time. And so they chose Bob Lawrence in my place, and uh, they took my advice. 
Well, Ed Dwight, you, you did. Ultimately, you retired from the Air Force in 1966, mm-hmm. took a position at IBM. Mm-hmm. You were an aviation mm-hmm. consultant, founded a real estate mm-hmm. development firm. You mm-hmm. were, however, living in Denver and working for IBM when Apollo 11 launched. And, of course, the whole world was watching this remarkable mm-hmm. feat. What did that feel like for you? I was excited as America was. And, and, and all the stuff that they, they had to do, it just all made sense to me at the time. Well, you've now been a sculptor for a few decades with major commissions, mm-hmm. huge bronze pieces installed mm-hmm. all over the world. A lot mm-hmm. of your images, the, the figures that you do, heroes, activists, mm-hmm. artists, uh, especially, mm-hmm. you know, African-American. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people would look to you and think you are one of those, even if you didn't get to the moon. What would you say to that? You know, people don't walk around thinking about space or anybody associated with it, but they do think about fame. Uh, and they do think about a kind, and they don't they don't discern or distinguish where that fame comes from, you know, whether you're a Kanye West or a Kim Kardashian or or an astronaut. And one of the things that bothers me, and I have to say this on the air, is that Gallon Bluford was the first uh, black astronaut to go into space. And I think to myself, you know, if what if that had been me? And if you ask anybody in the universe. Who was the first black astronaut that went into space? Nobody could tell you. Hmm. Nobody. That's right. And so I don't uh, think a lot of people know his name. Right, and you know, and and I know that. But what's fascinating is they know my name. <laughs> you know, they know my name all over the place because <laughs> my, my my mail and my email prove it, and the Facebook and everything else. You know, after I left the program, it kind of it subsided in everybody's memory base. And then all of a sudden, I come back as an artist on the scene as an artist. And they go, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this picture, you know. He was either an astronaut to be or an artist uh, to be. Now, they, he couldn't do both. So, therefore, if he was good as a, enough to be an astronaut guy, he's got to be a lousy artist. Because, you know, because uh, those things don't fit together. Well... We happen to know from <laughs> photographs that you sit there in a studio anyway and make things. <laughs> Ed Dwight, I want to thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you guys for caring, okay? Well, Ed Dwight is a name that we're remembering today, first African-American candidate to become an astronaut. He's an engineer, he's an entrepreneur, and a bona fide sculptor. He will speak tomorrow at Fernbank Science Center in Atlanta. You can also see more of his story on PBS's Chasing the Moon documentary. Details at our website, gpbnews.org forward slash moon. That's where you can find all of our related stories and join the conversation on social media by using the hashtag GPB to the moon. Among the sculptors that Ed has made, Louis Armstrong. And we will leave you with his version of Fly Me to the Moon. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Some kids from Middle Georgia prepared a moonshot of their own on Tuesday. They gathered at the Museum of Aviation in Warner Robins and released small stomp rockets at precisely 9.32 in the morning on the very day and the exact moment of the Apollo 11 launch some 50 years ago. getting excited about launching your rockets? Uh-huh. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to fly. 
How high do you think they're gonna go? I don't know. About a hundred feet. Have you ever launched a rocket before? No? I don't remember one. I wish it was nice so we could do it. I think it might go as high as the building. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did it before. Yeah? Alright, we'll see, okay? Thanks to our partners at GPB Education for that audio. You can find more coverage of the anniversary of Apollo 11 at gpb.org moon. Long before blockbuster cookbooks, community recipe collections were go-to references for recipes. These compilations were fundraising tools for church and junior league groups and Girl Scout troops and 4-H clubs. Matthew Terrell is an artist and writer. His book, The Magnolia Bayou Ladies Auxiliary Country Club Cooking and Entertaining Book... <sighs> picks up this spiral-bound DIY Southern tradition. The difference, this is fiction, with real recipes, fake commentary, fake ads, and a few extras in a hand-drawn book. And Matthew joins me in the studio to tell me more. Hello. Hi, Virginia. How are you doing today? And I'm better, all the better, because you brought us snacks. Oh, yes. I brought tea and cookies uh, from my cookbook. Never a bad idea to bring tea and cookies. Did you grow up with these kind of community cookbooks? I have collected community cookbooks probably in the last like 10 years of my life. Um, I read cookbooks like people read novels. Um, they're really great to read before you go to bedtime. Why is that? Because they always have happy endings. <laughs> they're very relaxing to read. Um, and never tell anybody that you collect anything because that's all you will ever have. I see. And so when I told people that I collect these comb-bound church community junior league cookbooks, I've gotten many, many, many of them, um, and they're really fun to read. Well, they're, and they're amateur productions. They're labors of love. What made them collectible for you? Why so special? I think what's really interesting is that they are sociological, historical documents through recipes. Like, you can really come to learn about a people and a place through the food that they make and the way that they talk about the food. And I thought what was really interesting was that you – almost feel like you get to know the people in the community of the cookbook that you read through the recipes they submit. And sometimes they have little openers and stories behind the recipes. So you get to know about their lives. And I just thought that was so charming that I wanted to do that myself in fiction. All right. So and that's what you did. Community cookbooks, as you said, they, they give you a history of a community. So in your case, you made them all up. The backstories and the place itself, Magnolia Bayou. Uh, also, you note the Singapore of the South. <laughs> yes. So what is, is this place? So Magnolia Bayou is a completely fictional place. Um, I grew up on a bayou in Mississippi, um, not in a country club. There was like a golf club next door. Um, but I grew up skiing on a bayou with alligators every single day of my life. Um, and the South that I grew up in, the M Mississippi Gulf Coast, I think the Gulf Coast in general, is very diverse and multicultural. 
Americans of all races from all around the country sort of end up there. And people actually from all around the world lived um, in this area of the South. And I thought what was really interesting about the coastal food is that it really brings in a lot of flavors and ingredients from other places around the world really well. It accepts all of those into the the palate and the style mm-hmm. of Southern cooking. Well, in fact, the, the couple of the authors here are Dr. Elaine Punjabi and also Dr. Sid Punjabi. So clearly they have influences from other places than Mississippi, as you do, or Louisiana, as the yes. bio is. Um, so those two characters you mentioned, these are fictional characters, Dr. Sid and Elaine Punjabi. Um, Elaine is a blonde white woman from South Carolina who was in a sorority uh, who met her husband, Sid Punjabi, at med school at Emory, and they married, and a lot of the recipes that they submit are about finding the commonalities between her southern cuisine and his upbringing and background as a Hindu man from India. And so they have recipes like curried peaches that they serve with biryani, and they they'd say that this is what we served at our wedding to our guests. And there's also Kitty Conway. She's another character who edits the beverages section, also does the entertaining section, which as far as I can tell is just about drinks. Yes, the entertaining <laughs> section is mostly about drinks. And well, and there's stuff in there about like having nice hand soap as well. Right, and having enough forks, <laughs> yes. having the right amount of disposable forks that or was, forks for every wedding. That was actually based on um, a story of my mother's that uh, a friend of hers roped her into catering her daughter's wedding. Wow. Um, and they got the food right, but they did not have enough plates. And so she spent the entire time hand-washing plates just to get them back out there soon enough to feed people. Okay, so we do have in that entertainment section uh, Tom and Jerry cocktail, Charleston Ladies Punch, the Bushwhacker. Yes, but, traditional Southern drinks. Well, But there's also, you know, there's a section for appetizers and soups, which we get in other cookbooks, but also picnics, herbs, and recherche. What, what is that? Oh, recherche is one of my favorite ideas. It comes from New Orleans. I discovered this while researching the book um, in the Times Picayune cookbook from New Orleans, which was the newspaper of record of New Orleans. It closed down recently. Um, but they have a volume that's been republished and reprinted many times over, which is the definitive book of Creole and Cajun cuisine. It is 600 pages long. I read every bit of it. But they talk a lot about recherche throughout the book, which is the little extra steps that you take to make something just a little bit nicer. So for example, in a nice white cream of cauliflower soup, you would never put black pepper in there because it would look like specks of dirt. Uh, You put white pepper in there. Um, And this is actually something that is throughout a lot of cuisines and cultures. Um, In Latin America, they would call this grandmother's touch. It's just like that little bit of extra effort and work you do to make sure that you peel those tomatoes before you put them into the salsa because that peel's just not very nice. So you clearly know food. Why didn't you just write a cookbook? What did you bring to this? This is an art project. Well, I have degrees in writing from Savannah College of Art and Design, and I'm a writer first. I... I'm a writer before a cook, is what I'll say. Um, And so what I wanted to do was tell a story in a very new and innovative way. Um, And so that's why I wanted to put the characters in there and put the stories in there. And because I really wanted to bend genres of what fiction and what food can do. Um, I thought that was very important to me. You know, coming from the art school background, that's definitely what 
going to art school is all about. It's about this experimentation. So I wanted to carry this on through my project, um, the Magnolia Bayou Country Club, Ladies Auxiliary, Cooking and Entertaining Book. And my guest is the author of that faux community cookbook, Matthew Terrell. It is a fictional Southern community that he's writing about and telling a story about in many ways, but the recipes are absolutely real. In fact, your 10 tips for better biscuits really impressed me. Oh, my 10 tips for better biscuits. You know, rather than providing like, this is the biscuit recipe that you have to make, I recognize that people often have, you know, their mom's recipe or the recipe they clipped off the back of a box of flour in the 1970s that they use. So what I do is I provide the things that you learn after making biscuits many, many times, oftentimes at your mother's hip. So for example, um, before you put them in the oven, you do a little indentation at the middle at the top with your thumb, um, and that will make sure that the middle doesn't rise up more and you have a nice flat top. Well, okay, so I want to, you said something about the 1970s, because there is a there is an era that's communicated here. In a way, it feels frozen in time, but yet you have some very contemporary food-ish things. Uh, Ms. Justine Vonnelly rails against dairy, for one thing. Um, and you mentioned Dr. Sid Punjabi, but he gives a recipe for Ayurvedic tea, which I am drinking right now. Nice cooling tea for the summer. But how to eat less meat. These are Buddhist notes by Kimber Parker Jones and then all about umami. So how did you bring that newness in here or why? Oftentimes I was thinking about what makes a good cook and what are details and information that I want to communicate. So for example, details of umami um, and thinking, well, how do I present this in the right form and who do I give this to? And so I saw I had characters who use fish sauce and characters who use Worcestershire sauce and use soy sauce. And so I wanted to bring all of that together and to explain the differences of these. So maybe you should remind us what, what umami is. Umami are the nice, round, deep flavors. It is the fifth taste um, discovered uh, in Japan back in the 1960s. It's that flavor that sort of fills your cheeks and your mouth um, with depth. And if it's not there for, for the right dishes, um, you need to put it there through Worcestershire or fish sauce. Um, even tomato paste has umami in it. There's like a story going on within this book, right? Yes. So when you read the book, you discover all about the community and how wonderful it is. But I've also stuffed into each book these handmade items. Um, including an obituary and a funeral program that has a recipe written on it. I really wanted to make it as real as possible, like you are finding this person's actual book and discovering their true lives. Well, that's the thing about old cookbooks. What, th there are a couple things that strike me. One is that this was one way that we can trace women's lives. I mean, you know, collectors and scholars look at these to figure out what the life of a woman was in the domestic realm, or give them clues, you know, because there are so few times when women's names were even in print, one thing. And the other is like, I love looking at cookbooks at, um, at especially used cookbooks, you know, at, at junk shops and that kind of thing and seeing people's notes. And I actually have my mom's cookbook with her notes in them. And, you know, the funny thing she said, like, double this recipe for we, the cake is too thin, you know, that kind of thing. These personal items. But when I was looking through this book and so I was like, oh, Matthew left this funeral program here by mistake. <laughs> but I realize it's all part of the thing because the funeral takes place at J.J. Broussard and Daughter's Funeral Home in Vinegar Bend, Alabama. Yes, there are all sorts of Easter eggs uh, like that hidden all over the book where 
I'm trying to twist um, what would be a traditional uh, saying or traditional company in the South. So that's why you have JJ Broussard and daughters. <laughs> well, you also have like little fake business cards in, you know, like we would see in a community cookbook. There are these mimeographed for the things. <laughs> for the... And then we also start to recognize that the florist also contributes to the cookbook. Oh, so yes. there's a little bit of a spillover there. Oh, yeah. they The characters uh, have recipes in there. They've got ads for their own businesses uh, in Magnolia Bayou. I can't tell you how many of my buyers have come back to me and said, is this real? Like, people think that this is a legitimately, like, real community. And there's um, one of the, the first ad is actually for a real estate agent in Magnolia Bayou. <laughs> and everybody asks if they can buy some land there, buy a new house and retire. You could really be doing something for that little Magnolia Bayou. But what a production. I mean, that was, must have been a lot of work. Yes, this was done in... About nine months. It was funded from Savannah College of Art and Design, where I went to school. They fund outside-the-box alumni projects. Um, and so they gave me seed money to do this. And the biggest challenge of this book was the comb binding. Mm -hmm. um, we had written the entire book. We had gotten all the design elements. And I had been through so many printers trying to find somebody who could do that comb binding. Um, and everything I heard was like, no, you know, the machines we use today, they don't use that. The comb binding has to be done by hand. Nobody uses those machines anymore. And by anymore. comb binding, it's like that black spiral yep. thing. Yep. Until I found a company that had a machine in their storage unit, and they relearned how to use it. And these are all made by hand, literally, from the printer to when I am stuffing uh, the recipe cards and the notes and the funeral programs in there. Um, it's really been a labor of love. And I think that's reflective of what the original uh, cookbooks, junior league cookbooks were. Um, you know, those were big undertakings that would take multi-years of committees and subcommittees for the recipes and for the, the ice cream right. committee How and cookie committee. How did you decide behind, between poinsettia, fountain blues, you know, tuna casserole or Kitty Conway's? Well, some of them I noticed they would have tuna casserole one, tuna casserole two, and tuna casserole three. Oh my goodness. But I think some of them, like the junior league cookbooks, it was they're much more discerning and picky about it. Um, at the end of those cookbooks, they would oftentimes have a thank you section um, to all the members who had been editors of you know, these junior league and church cookbooks. So I made sure to thank my own fictional characters who were editors in there. And in a way, it was kind of like thanking different aspects of my own personality. And I also got to joke about um, some of the characters. They, with Kitty Conway, who's a known lush, she's the one who edited the food and drink section, uh, they thanked her for staying sober through the long and excruciating <laughs> editing process. Well, and you sold out on the first day. First day that you sell them, right? Yes, I sold out on my first day. So where, where can people get them? You can buy them directly from me, um, magnoliabayoucookbook.com. Um, my name is Matthew Terrell. I'll also be at Decatur Book Festival on August 31st um, as part of a panel about bending genres. I hope people will come there. Um, and right now, I am... I'm not on the ground floor. I'm on the third or fourth floor right now of this entire world of Magnolia Bayou, which I think is going to be this new genre of fictional cooking. I want to see like a TV show that you're going to learn recipes, but you're 
entwined with the characters in their lives. I, I see so much with Magnolia Bayou there. On the back it says this is the first biennial edition. And so I guess that means uh, next year I've got to start working on the, uh, the second one. <laughs> well, Matthew, thank you so much. What an accomplishment. Thank you so much, Virginia. Matthew Terrell, an artist and writer and the author of the Magnolia Bayou Ladies Auxiliary. Cooking and entertaining book. Thank you very much. I didn't say country club. He will be at the Bending Genres panel at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. On Second Thought is For Real, produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Raul, Raven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer, Allison Kraussman, and Jessica Lowell are our interns. Don Smith, our Dean of Grammar, Amy Kiley is senior producer, Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott, now auditioning for Kitty Conway in that series, if you do it. Okay, Matthew? Perfect. All right, thanks. <laughs>